0: up the opportunity. And we have already covered, I'm sorry if you're looking at the headings there in your Bible and you see one on head coverings and you can read all of the exciting gender language there. That was last week. We've covered that. You can go back and find it. But this week we are looking at a, an entirely new subject. Um, Paul is very topical as he goes through First Corinthians because he's responding to Q&As that he got from his people. See, doing Q&As is very, very biblical. He's responding to a, a letter full of questions uh, from the church, and he's also responding to reports that he's heard about the church that are not overly positive. And so he just answered the one about gender roles in the worship service and how men need to be evidently um, authoritative and wives must be evidently submissive to those husbands. And this we, and now he just picks up an entirely new section uh, in verse 17 and starts talking about the Lord's Supper. I've called tonight's sermon the, the Feast of Faith, Because as we look at this all-important ordinance of the Lord, as Paul explains it to us, we have one of the the key elements to a biblical church. We're going to read from verse 17 through to verse 34. Uh, It's a large section. And then if you forgive me, we will be a little bit less line by line tonight, um, much to my own dismay, so that we can cover the lot and all of the theological implications of uh, the Lord's Supper. So join with me in verse 17. Hear now the word of the living God. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, full stop there. We're not going to go in depth to this, but let me give a quick recap. He's basically saying, when you come into the Lord's Supper, there's all sorts of cliques and factions and schisms, you're on the, on the point of just breaking up into your individual groups as mini-churches. That is not good or not fitting for a table that is all about unity. Yet he says here, however, divisions are good, or, or, or he says opinions, the real word for that is where we get the word heresy, uh, heres in the Greek, but it's here, div- the, though there is not um, uh, divisions, he says that there should be factions. He says, I understand that there are factions among you, and that's okay. There should be, so that the genuine are recognizable. And just in short, what he's saying is, we shouldn't be ideal about the local church and think that we'll all agree on every primary, secondary, and tertiary matter. Some of you will be wrong about lots of things, and you'll have my theology when we get to heaven. Everyone will. (laughs) But he says, what is helpful about secondary and tertiary uh, disagreements is that it forces people to think. So if there was not agreement, uh, disagreements and questions being raised and this guy with this opinion, there would not be people intentionally studying through scripture and coming to an opinion. There was never a disagreement. You could just walk in, click your brain off, go through church, walk home. Nobody would know that you don't think critically about scripture. But when we have differences in opinions and convictions and tertiary matters, it's actually good it makes us all study And those who don't care for the Word of God end up having no opinion on anything and are very evidently not students of Scripture. That's what he's saying. So it says, though we'd all love to agree on everything, it's okay when there's uh, factions at least. It just brings about the, uh, he says here, so that those who are genuine may be recognizable. Verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, so, uh, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give you directions when I come. May the Lord bless the reading and exposition of his holy, inerrant, infallible, powerful word among us this evening. <clears throat> We're going to have a look at three different uh, uh, elements of the Lord's Supper tonight. We're going to look at it at, from a, a biblical theological uh, direction and angle. Then we're going to look at it at more of a systematic theological angle. And then we're going to look at it at a very practical theological angle. So they're going to be our, our, our three ways to approach this, and therefore not entirely line by line and word by word, as is our usual practice. But that will be our, our attempts, to figure out the, the biblical overarching significance of such a covenantal meal and then to ask the theological questions that you've got to have if you think and, and you come to passages like this where Jesus is saying that he is bread and then some practical questions that I hope you have when you start hearing that God is killing people in church for doing it wrong. So we're going to have all of those. But it helps us to think of a little bit of context because in Corinth... Context is key. They were getting almost everything wrong. They were doing some things right. It was at least able to be called a church, and Paul kept on persistently calling them saints, and yet they were unsaintly saints, and they were damaging a lot of their witness in the community. And we can think that they were probably a church of around 50 to 60 people, not a megachurch. God's sorting these problems out while they're small so that as they can grow, he can truly bless them and that they will renown to the glory of God. What they had was, and maybe some of you have heard this, maybe some of you have really latched on to this, this teaching and, and think that this is how we should be doing communion, is that the early church had what is called a, a love feast. And in that love feast, they would go house to house and they would break bread and they would have a, a big feast and eat together and everyone would, would you know, it was a potluck, it was the, 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 uh, this is the etymology of the, of the potluck. And, and so they would come together and eat and feed one another and enjoy each other and somewhere amidst that, the, 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 house, the head of the household this is a very Jewish structure. The head of the household would take up some bread and break it and say, this is the Lord's body, do this in remembrance of me, and would pour some wine and do the same thing. And so this love feast or communion was not just something that they did mid-service, it was really a whole other event when they would come together in feasting. And that's not unbiblical, that's fine, Uh, But we see that, really, the Lord's Supper, in its most essential nature, is nestled within all of that. The most essential elements are some bread, some wine, and somebody presiding over it as a teacher of the Word of God and the people. Where you have that, you have a Lord's Supper. And so that can look in so many different ways, culture to culture and throughout time. But the, the early church was doing it in this big feast scenario. And it led to some errors or it was very easy to start stepping off course. In Corinth, what we see from Paul here is that some people were rich, some people were poor, and it wasn't a potluck where you bring everything together and share among everybody. It was a BYO meal and drink and people would bring their food, portion off their side of the table with some tape, eat everything they could, be engorged, start unbuttoning shirts, kicking back, burping and belching while the poor people in the church who had come to get a feed are sitting hungry up the back, not allowed at the table because they didn't bring enough food. You also have, as Paul says here, some people who just delight in the fact that Jesus made wine out of water and we should delight in the good things of the Lord and they're getting drunk in this love feast, apparently to the glory of God. So you have some gluttons who are feeding, some drunkards who are just getting wasted on communion wine, and then other people who are not eating or drinking anything. And people are supposed to look at this and think, Jesus died to make a holy people and bring them all together as one. How amazing. What a glorious God and gospel that they have. So you can understand the problems that Paul is saying in this setting, the the love feasts that you have, it's gone completely out of hand. You've forgotten what this is meant to symbolize. It's proclaiming the wrong thing. It's not the Lord's Supper. It's, an, it's a problem. So he starts digging into all of these realities. <clears throat> what we see, we're going to first look at the biblical unfolding of this covenantal meal. If you remember back in Exodus chapter 12, or if you remember even back to, to John 13 and onwards, and the other places in the Gospels where Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, The Last Supper is a Passover meal, carrying on from the Jewish tradition. It was the meal, the feast that you would do in a house, usually with a family, um, on the, the night before the Passover. And it was remembering backwards to the salvation of Egypt. I probably don't need to go into extensive detail. I trust you remember some elements of that story when, in being saved out of the powers of Egypt, God saw fit to not just pick up the Jews and move them, but systematically slaughter each of the gods that the Jews had trusted in while living in Egypt. God wanted to not just bring the Jews out of Egypt, but the Egypt out of the Jews. And so he had done all of these miracles and plagues, and the final one was the death of the firstborn son of every family, except Gentile, Egyptian, and Jew alike. Any household that had done what God had... Commanded through Moses, which was take a perfect unblemished lamb, about a year old, killed it, spread its blood over the doorposts, and then gone in and eaten it with the family. If they had partaken in that meal, symbolized with the blood of the lamb, then God did not kill them that night. The lamb died, the son went free. And every year, the Jews would do this over and over again as a reminder, as a reminder that looking back, God has redeemed us from Egypt. God has redeemed us from slavery. And the blood reminds us that we deserve death. But at the blood of a lamb, at the death of a lamb, we have gone free. So every year they would do this. And Jesus, in doing this with his um, disciples, was not just looking back to what the Jews had celebrated, but very much looking forward to the very next day when he would become that lamb, whose blood would be shed over the household of God and that only the people in the household of God, under the blood of the Lamb of God, would be saved from the wrath of God. So what Jesus did on that day, it was blasphemous if it wasn't God in flesh to be sitting there over the meal with his 12 disciples and start saying this covenantal meal that Yahweh made about Him, the thrice holy Yahweh burning on top of Mount Sinai, that God, I'm making this meal now about me. If it wasn't Yahweh himself in flesh, that was a blasphemous thing to do. But he was Jesus. He was taking the bread, which was symbolic of different things, and he was making it about him now. And he was taking the, the third cup in that uh, uh, process of the night. There was four wine cups. He took the third one, which was the cup of blessing. And he, he said that this is now not symbolic of the old covenant, not symbolic of a lamb's blood. This is my blood. This is my new covenant starting tonight. Blood will be shed People will be renewed. People will come to God through the torn veil. The temple will come down eventually. God's dwelling place will be with mankind in and through the gospel of Jesus. It was the Passover. It was looking back. Jesus then took that and made it um, something new moving forwards. There are these two words that are repeated in each of those dramatic stories. At least it comes through in the ESV. I don't care about the original languages because it doesn't help my point. But in, the original, in Genesis 3, you look back there and, and what had happened is that this perfect garden that, that God had made and Adam and Eve that he had put into it was, was uh, infiltrated by the serpent, that Adam was supposed to be a worker and keeper, a, a protector over the garden and he had failed in seeing the serpent come and not defending And the wife, it says, that Eve, she she took the bread after all the temptation and the uh, deception that came from Satan. She took and ate is the words. She took and she ate. And in that is the curse upon the centuries of mankind, that they took and ate what was forbidden from them and brought curse upon themselves. Then says that she gave it to her husband. She took and gave it to her husband and he ate. He received this food of cursing from his wife and ate it with her and damned her and damned the rest of the human race. What we have at the Passover is this language, take of the lamb, take of the blood and eat of the flesh. So the God is undoing what had become a curse in the taking and eating. Now they were taking and shedding and eating for redemption. And what it says is that Jesus, in that final Lord's, the first Lord's Supper, the last Passover Supper, he took and broke and said, take and eat in Matthew's gospel. A true reversing of Genesis 3. What was eaten in cursing is now an eating in blessing. It took 4,000 years. Ligan Duncan says this. He says, it took 4,000 years for the words take and eat to become a true life-giving blessing. And this time, it was not Adam receiving the cursed food from his wife into sin. It was the church receiving the life-giving bread through her husband, Jesus, as he was going to shed his blood. It was not like Adam who preferred to do what she was doing instead of saving, but he rather said, I will die that you might live, take, and eat. So as we come to the Lord's Supper, we need to recognize that this is, this is a culmination of history. Take and and eat, the Lord says, for salvation and for joy. We can then look at Revelations 19. This is, the, this is the line that theologians draw through history, beginning with a cursed meal, clues of a blessed meal throughout it, culminating in the Lord's Supper, but being perfected in what is still future to us. Revelation 19, verses six to nine, reads like this. John says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. And it was crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fresh, fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this down. Blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Back in the garden, the words of God were twisted, led to deception and the eating of death. And here the angel speaking to John says, these are the true words of God. Beckon them back into the garden. You're not cast out anymore. Come back through where the angel stood at the gates of Eden, barring anybody from coming back to eat of the eternal life tree. Now they're beckoning anybody to come. Blessed are you if you come. Come and eat of the tree of the cross of the eternal life that is now on offer in Jesus. Blessed are all those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That will be a great and glorious feast. Isaiah says that there is choice meats and fine wine. We have a lot to look forward to. This is throughout scripture what we partake in then in the Lord's Supper is looking back and saying from the slavery to our sin not Egypt we've been redeemed at the blood of the lamb in that crucifixion has been the, 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 the source of our redemption but it's also looking forwards realizing this is not just remembering this is proclaiming this is not just looking back this is looking forward with expectation That that meal is coming, that meal is gone, we're now rejoicing and celebrating in the interim with a joyful declaration. He's coming back, the meal will be better, and we are awaiting a kingdom that will be fulfilled. So this is the, the, the biblical overarching story of the meal, a covenantal meal. When we come together for the Lord's Supper, it is not just, we're going to get into this a little bit, it's not just a reminder as if it was pictures. It's the joining with Christ around his table in a covenantal meal. Let's, let's get out of silly ideologies that think that the Old Testament was super significant and New Testament is kind of boring. What they were experiencing year by year by ordered law was come around renew your covenant with the Lord and remember what he did, rededicate yourselves and promise around that table that he is your Lord and you are his people. So when we come to that meal month by month, week by week, whatever our church does it month by month here, we come again to renew our covenant, to remember what God has done and to look forward to what Christ is going to do when he comes back. This is an all-significant event. Looking at it biblical theological, now we can look at it systematic theological and ask, seriously, what is happening in that bread and wine? When we come together, and Jesus is saying, literally, this is my blood. And he literally says, This is my body. And, and then we can pick sides either with the Catholics, don't do that, Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, who do we pick? Because they all have all these different views, and, and it's important. Again, it's, it's not good to, to have divisions around this. It is good to have opinions, remember, so that the, the genuine among us might be evident. But, but we recall as Reformed Christians that there are three marks of a true church. Three essential marks of a true church that came out of the Reformation, really clarified, but of course this has been true throughout the ages. The right preaching of the Word of God, especially the gospel. The word is not taught rightly, it's not a church. They may open the Bible, they may have pretty things on screen that have some words there. If it's not rightly explained, and you know if it's being rightly explained because it points to Jesus, if it's not rightly explained, it's not a true church. The, the, The word of God is the source and substance of spiritual life, it's the sustenance of a people's community, it's everything. So, first of all, the right preaching of the word of God, especially in the gospel, Secondly, is the right administration of the sacraments. So that where a church is flippant about who it's baptizing, doesn't care about how you take or if you take the Lord's Supper, it's flippant around those things. It has no real theology around it. Maybe it doesn't even do it at all. Uh, Those sorts of things uh, uh, contribute to whether or not a church can rightly be said to be a true church. Jesus only gave two ordinances or sacraments, whatever you'd like to call them. He gave baptism and he gave the Lord's Supper. Baptism is the door, the Lord's Supper is the table in a family. You come in the door, you only go through that once, but then you sit down at the table frequently to remem- remember and partake in family benefits. But it is so important. And then, of course, the third element of a, of a third mark of a true church is church discipline some kind of intentional and actual uh, involvement of shepherds and people so that righteousness is being cultivated. And when it's not, when sin is flourishing, then it's addressed through the process of negative church discipline. That is that the, the, the less pleasant version of it. But those three things, the preaching of the word in the gospel, the right administration of the sacraments, and the church discipline. And that really all comes together here. We see the word of God explaining and informing the supper. We see the supper being done rightly. And then we see certain people not allowed to come to the table. That's church discipline. <clears throat> So verse 23 to 26, you can have a look at it there again. This is where he's, he's explaining to them what it is that he received from Jesus Christ as an apostle to give to the churches. It's where he says, I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, and he explains all of this language of, here's my body, here's my blood. <clears throat> if you are a Catholic, welcome, please repent. What you would believe, if you believe according to the, the dogmas of the Catholic Church, is in something called transubstantiation. If you remember that for the after church, you get a half-price book. Transubstantiation, which means trans is, is crossing. We know what that means today. It means changing and crossing boundaries. It means trans. Substantial is, means the substance Uh, Asian just means it's a thing that's happening. Transubstantiation is when uh, they believe that in the bread and in the wine, by the authority of the priest who is residing there, in the spirit he calls down Jesus off of the throne and infuses his nature and substance into the bread and wine so that it becomes in its substance truly the physical body and the physical blood of Jesus. And you all say, surely they look at it and they can tell when it doesn't go slightly brown Jewish skin color and it doesn't have little hairs on it, it's evidently not blood, surely they can tell that's not happening. They get through that with a bit of Aristotelian ridiculous logic and say, well, it's changing, but the visibility of it remains as it is. It looks as bread, it is clothed in bread, it is the body and blood. Throw it out, we don't believe that. First of all, because it's ridiculous... Second of all, because it's gross. And third of all, because Scripture teaches to us that Jesus' human and divine nature do not cross. They don't intermingle. They don't confuse themselves. Which means that Jesus is the eternal God incarnate in human flesh. However, his human body can only be in one place at one time. He doesn't get to be omnipresent, touching his human nature because he's a human being. He is omnipresent, touching his divine nature, but that means his flesh can't go everywhere. And so Jesus isn't able to be all the, all the place. If some of his flesh is on earth being eaten in these massive Catholic churches in South America, how much of him is left on the throne? It'd be skeleton. Now, and so they, they can't be in two places at once. That's the, dividing, or sorry, the confusing of the divine and human nature. The next step was what was Luther's uh, belief coming into the Reformation. He believed in consubstantiation. It's not that it changes substance. It's that it's both bread and the body of Jesus. That it's not that it's literally here. It's, it's that it's spiritually, really, and truly the bread, uh, the, the body, and the blood of Jesus. It's, it's changing, again, not visibly, um, but it's not full-blown substantial, uh, transubstantiation that doesn't solve the issue of the communication of the attributes between divine and human nature, and it's not uh, precisely what Scripture teaches, he, he landed there because he kept on emphasizing, Jesus says, this is my flesh. So it has to be. We can't get around that. Let's not be uh, you know, afraid of, of literalisms in the Bible. But Jesus also said, I am a door. He said, I'm a gate. I'm a shepherd he said all sorts of things. That, and he says, I'm living water. He, he does not mean in any of those ways literally. He is truly a gate, truly a shepherd, truly a rock, but not literally those things. And so here we, we, don't par, we don't share in that view. We also don't share in Zwingli's view, which was that this is just a memorial meal. You come together, nothing fancy happening, but it's us by taking up bread and wine, we are remembering. It's, it's a wholly human side. As God has commanded, it's a human act where we remember. But we also uh, don't believe that, because, uh, which a lot of Baptists believe, not Reformed Baptists, but a lot of Baptists believe that, um, and I also don't think that does uh, uh, justice to what the Scriptures teach. The guy we side with, you might have heard of him, is a guy by the name of Jean Calvin, a, a French reformer who worked and labored in Geneva, and he taught us that it was a spiritual meal. It was a real meal where we are nourished, where the Holy Spirit is present, but we're not being nourished on the bread and the wine. It's a spiritual meal because the Spirit is here and he is doing a work in us that is real. What we need to realize here is that Scripture gives to us not a, a Western post-Enlightenment view of the world where we have either a physical reality, which what we usually call real, and then this spiritual thing which is really just an idea and it's not in reality. Christianity holds together. There is a spiritual reality and a physical reality and and they're not always easily separated. We've already seen this in the book of Corinthians, haven't we? People are saying, I'm not having sex with my spirit. I'm just seeing the hooker with my body. Jesus gets soul, pleasure gets body. Separation. You can't... So we need to realize it's a physical act it's a spiritual act. It's a physical act of sex with a spiritual act being undertaken. You're going one spirit and flesh with this woman. Or we can look at uh, uh, the, the way that they were dividing. We're just dividing physically. No, it's a spiritual division in the body of Jesus. This is happening all over again. It's going to happen again in 1 Corinthians 15 when he talks about the resurrection. As if they think, we'll be resurrected spiritual cherubs in heaven. And Paul says, no, it's a It's a spiritual act of resurrection, but our bodies go with it. As a Christian, in fact, just as people created in the image of God, just because we are doing physical acts does not mean it's not a spiritual act. So, of course, the food that we eat when we do bread and wine is the stuff from Coles or Woolies. It's just tortilla bread and it's just some box brand wine. And yet... As we come to commune, it is a spiritual meal where we are not being nourished by by the food itself. We are nourished by faith as we partake in the spirit. And And yet, if you did not eat the physical elements, you cannot be spiritually nourished. See how how interwoven these realities is of spirit and and physical nature? It's a spiritual meal. You're you're nourished by faith. It's the work of the spirit. And yet if you don't eat those physical acts, it does not occur. This is the Christian religion. This is entirely the Christian religion. This means (coughs) that we cannot separate what God has brought together. Let's just think for a moment in the era of COVID church, whether or not online communion is at all a passable biblical reality? Or whether Paul would say, that's not Lord's Supper, stop doing it, it's better for you not to meet. Can we do online church uh, uh, Lord's Supper? The answer is emphatically no. You you can eat it, it's just snacks, it's not communion. Well, we can sort of play this this mind uh, exercise and think, what would it be if we just didn't do certain things? Can we imagine if we came together and we all sat down to have communion, we just didn't have bread and wine. We're going to take communion, but it's going to be spiritually taken, not physical. You would rightly say, no, 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 there's necessary physical elements that entail this spiritual meal, right? And then again, if we were to say, well, I mean, if we did communion just without the bread and the wine, it'd just be prayer time. It'd just be a sermon. Or likewise, if we were to do it and say, well, we're going to do communion, but watch this, we're all going to be in our own homes and we're going to do it over the the video feed. That also is just snacks, not communion. One of the necessary physical elements that make it a spiritual meal is the coming together of the church. If you're not physically together, it's not communion. You're not gathering, you're not communing, you're not around one another. There is no sense of real and true unity. This was true from the first century onwards, that as people would come together, it's the seeing of each other right next to you that is such a glorious reality. You see that girl going forwards and you know some of her sins, but you know she's been forgiven. And this guy goes forwards and you and her, him and have had a bit of a fight, but you came together as brothers in the Lord and here you are at the same table and this guy's way poorer than you and this guy's way richer than you and all of us come together around the table. This physical, visual act is the spiritual act and so we can't divide it up like this like so many have done there is no such thing as online communion it's like asking can i give money spiritually without giving the physical money it's like and and we hear this people say well well we're not together because of covid regulations but we're spiritually together we need to say no, no no church is where you're spiritually together you're, you're, you're thinking mentally disconnected docetism, Gnosticism together. You're not together in the spiritual realm if you're not together physically. It's like saying, well, we'll have sex, just not physically. We'll do it spiritually. And Paul literally was talking about it in 1 Corinthians 7. saying That's not possible. Your bodies are good. They're made for your husband and wife. So the day that you can... Give, fo- give money, eat food, and have sex without the physical elements is the day that you can do communion without the physical elements together. And it is a feeding by faith. One of the glorious realities that we see in the Passover is that the lamb was not just a substitute for atonement. It was that. It was wrath-bearing, guilt-taking, death-giving. It was, it was a, an atonement of substitute, but it also, because they ate it, became sustenance. And even in many of the Old Testament sacrifices, the priest would take it, kill it, shed the blood, and take some of it to eat himself. So what we realize is that we come to the Lord's Supper. It's not just uh, 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 atonement and substitution. It's also continual sustenance. As we come, our souls are fed. As Paul said back in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, verse 7 or 17, he said, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, let us celebrate the festival. This might mean that some of us need to, if, if you're a purely evening service person, you might need to start thinking that you need to get to the monthly morning service at least so that you can partake in communion. It's a covenantal meal between you and the Lord and we don't have a practice of thinking of the evening service as one church and the morning service as one church. We come together, all of us, for the Lord's Supper And if by matter of habit or practice you are unable to come to the Lord's table in the mornings, we encourage you to get there at least for that Sunday morning in the month. And here we, of course, come to the most practical of it. How to not be struck dead in the Lord's Supper. A very practical question to ask. Look down at verse 27 through 34 and he explains here that some of the Corinthians are sick, some of them are dying, some of them are currently in the grave because of, of the illegitimate taking of the Lord's Supper. This is pretty simple. Three elements that we must keep in mind if we're coming to the Lord's table, and that is that we must be a Christian, that we must be examining ourselves, and that we must be coming as one unified people. Verse 27 tells to us, whoever, therefore, because this is a spiritual reality, because the Holy Spirit is the one here mediating blessing and curse if we are not examining ourselves, because that's a reality, more so than in the Old Testament when people would be struck dead, because the Spirit is here mediating the presence of the Holy God, verse 27 says, therefore whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of of the Lord. If you're a first century Jew, it was not enough to say, I saw the crucifixion of Jesus. It was not enough. You had to say that you had meaningfully come and believed in it by faith to be a Christian. In fact, we don't have a, new, a space of neutrality. Jesus holds no space of neutrality. We are either his enemies or we are his communal friends coming around the supper. So if you have not repented of your sin and come and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, this is the call do that you you do not want Christ as an enemy he's a he's a, a horrible just enemy but he is a dear and near friend and brother and Savior come to him and eat of him and believe in him but the, the, in, in this reality of no neutrality, yet when you come to the supper, you need to be careful because just like in the first century when the Jews, they, when they were bringing Jesus to be crucified and Pilate says, I, I don't want to do it, don't want to do this, this is an un, unguilty man and they cry out, let his blood, meaning the guilt of his murder, be upon us and our children for this. And God saw it fit that he would bring destruction and, and punishment to that generation. We need to think in the same way. When we come to the Lord's Supper, if you are still an enemy of Christ, that cry is coming out of your mouth as you come. This is apparently symbolizing the blood of the Son of God. This is apparently symbolizing the body of Jesus given for sinners. As an enemy, I should see in that a declaration of my coming destruction if I do not repent. But I'm going to come in, I'm going to take these elements, and in mockery to the Son of God, I'm going to partake in them. There will be judgment for that. And instead, while we, therefore it is just a Christian-only ordinance, and when we do it, we let people know that. Don't, don't come if you're not a Christian. Please stay where you are. The next part is encouraging that Paul does say, let a person examine himself. So first of all, we need to be a Christian. Second of all, we need to be actively examining. He says, whoever eats and drinks without discerning the blood eats and drinks judgment of, on himself, and therefore there are these consequences. When we come, we're discerning the body, saying this is is body that was broken so that guilty sinners can be forgiven. And this is blood that is shed so that sin can be repented of and we can be cleansed. Therefore, as Christians, we need to be intentional that as we come, I'm coming repentant. I'm not bringing hidden, secret, persistent sin to a table that is meant to be celebrating the end of my sin. I'm not going to be bringing to the supper of the Lamb of God the very thing that was put on the Lamb of God and killed Him. I'm going to come in holiness. I'm going to come in repentance. I'm going to come in faith. This is what examining means. And so in the regularity with which we take the Lord's Supper, we should be intentionally thinking as that time comes up again, have I been living in unrepentant, persistent, intentional sin And do I demand that Jesus just get over it when I come to the Lord's Supper? He will not. The Spirit is here convicting and bringing our repentance to the fore. And yet I want to say that maybe you're somebody who who every time communion comes around, you're shaking in your boots and you're just sure that you shouldn't come because this month hasn't been perfect either. And and we need to realize that as we partake in the Lord's Supper, it's not just for the spiritually nourished, it's for Nourishment for the spiritually weak. So, if you can honestly say before the Lord, there's no sin that is gross and ongoing and unrepentant that you're sure the Lord wants you to repent of. If you're simply saying, "I'm, I'm struggling," I'm, "I'm weak," "I need assurance," "My faith needs to be strengthened," "I'm still imperfect," then sinner, come. Jesus sees you as cleansed. No person that ate of the Passover. No person that ate of the Lord's supper. No person that has ever eaten of the Lord's Supper since comes in pure, white linen clothes without some stain of sin. We are all still imperfect, coming but being sustained. It's not until the marriage supper that is to come in the future that it says of us, we are all perfectly dressed, free of any more sinful thought, mindset or lust whatsoever. So lastly, we need to realize that we come in unity. We see here in verse 33 to 34, Paul really wraps it up in this most practical of ways. And he says, Therefore, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. This is just, is he talking to kids? If it's a meal together, at least have it together. At least be, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. I think he's here putting a, cutting the, the legs out from under what they would do as a love feast. I think he's saying, no more feasting. It's confusing. It's distracting. Eat at home. Come together for the necessary elements of blood and wine and remembrance. And, and in doing that, the, the poor would come, the rich would come, the, the hungry would come, the full would come, everybody would come, and it would be the unity that is being put on display Instead of eating a meal that emphasizes disunity, they'll be visible for all those that are among them. And they would be reminding themselves as they eat together that this is something that brings us together. Two things should be central in the Lord's Supper in our mind. The crucifixion as the death of Jesus for our sin and the communion and union that we have together. The atonement and our unity. The cross and our community need to be central. Because we are a community of crucified with Christ people. We're a bunch of dead people, made alive, dead to sin, living to God, who come and in and through the cross celebrate new life together, one and all, background irrelevant, sins forgiven, we come. And so with that, I want to quickly turn to John 6 as we close out our sermon here. John 6 is, would you believe it, just after John 5. John 5, the great... Uh, miracle when he, uh, sorry, uh, at the end of John 5, he arrives in an area, and at the beginning of John 6, he uh, feeds the 5,000, feeds the 5,000, and they come back the next day for more food. And he tells to them in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus used a physical miracle to point to a spiritual reality. That the bread that I gave you yesterday, miraculous though it was, you're hungry again and you're back. And you're back distracted. You want some fleshly sustenance. I'm telling you, enter into the gate through my blood and body. Come and eat of the bread that I give you spiritually, which is my body for salvation. This is not a communion text. This is a text about faith. But the language and the imagery is so helpful. We can look over at verse 54, where Jesus says, Whoever feeds on my flesh. A picture of faith that is fully taking all that Christ is into our being. It is not enough to look at bread and marvel at it and smell it and study it. You must take it into yourself. So it is with Jesus. It's not enough to be here and know about Jesus and hear about Jesus. Have you, by the act of spiritual eating, had faith in Jesus and received all of his benefits into your person? And then he goes on to say, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, has eternal life. I will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And there's the call of faith. You're, You're laboring for bread that cannot save your own good deeds, your own righteous living, your own sin and substances or, or, or lifestyle of running from Jesus will not satisfy you, will not give you eternal life. You have to turn. Turn to Jesus, the eternal bread of life from heaven, miraculously given to us. When we believe in his death, we eat of his body. When we believe that his blood cleanses, we are drinking that blood in a spiritual sense. And then we get baptized, imaging that, and then we eat continually of the Lord's Supper in remembrance of that covenant that he has made with sinners. Let's, let's bow our heads and pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the willing lamb who came from heaven and gave yourself as the spotless, unblemished, perfect and pure lamb whose blood was shed one time to cover a multitude of sinners. Not a sacrifice that needs to be repeated, not a sacrifice that needs to be uh, done again in order to be efficacious. We don't need to keep on doing it to be really sure we're pure and clean, but by one suffering sacrifice. You have perfected for all time those who draw near to God through you. So God, I pray that we would be those who are confident not in ourselves, but confident in the blood of this lamb that has been shed. And that as we come to the table of the Lord's Supper, and whenever we hear this preached, we would be remembering that your blood conquers death, that you uh, lay before us a meal in the presence of our enemies, that you provide all that is needed for our spiritual salvation. Pray, Lord, that you would... Uh, increase our thinking of the Lord's Supper so that we are continually holding it in high reverence and that anybody who has repentance for sin that is necessary, anybody who has been harboring uh, uh, sinful behavior, Lord, would you bring that to the fore, bring them to repentance so that they can find the joy of walking in in the light. And I pray, Lord, for anybody that does not believe in you, would they see in your death the death that they deserved and that we see in in your resurrection the life that they can have Would you, Lord, be their saviour? Would you please save them, bring them, forgive them, and bring them into our community of the saved and forgiven? And everybody said, Amen.